Cats Run Podcast. Welcome to the first episode of Top Secret Guest. Top Secret Guest is going to be a recurring feature on the Black Cats Run podcast where we bring in different individuals with a variety of diverse experiences, perspectives, and backgrounds to help to add to, enhance, elevate and bring bring more powerful and impactful context to the kinds of conversations and problems that we are exploring here in this space. I hope you enjoy today's episode. I'm really excited to be able to bring this to you. If you are enjoying the podcast or you really like what you've heard on this episode in particular, please check us out on our Instagram at Black Cats Run. Send us a message. Let us know what you think and If you have people in your space who you think would enjoy this kind of thing, please let them know about the podcast, repost it to your story. We'd really appreciate it. All right, let's get into today's episode. Our first ever top secret guest is somebody I have greatly admired for a long time. For their personal integrity, their professional excellence, and their remarkable intellectual prowess. She has spent 18 years working in education and has spent time in all levels of education from preschool through high school, has earned an associate's degree in child development, a bachelor's in psychology, as well as early childhood education, and a master's and special education. She's currently a high school special education teacher. Amanda Black Ingersoll, thank you for making time to join us here on the Black Cats Run podcast, and thank you for being our first ever top secret guest. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. I want to start by sharing with you a quote that I heard on an Instagram reel that popped up while I was mindlessly scrolling the other day, and uh, there's dramatic music in the background, so... Since we're not going to use the original audio, I've decided to backtrack a little mood music so that you get the full experience. I tell young people all the time, I definitely tell my kids, if you're even remotely a savage, you will run these people over. This next generation, and I know every generation thinks the generation after them is soft, If you are even remotely a savage, you will run over every one of these kids in this next generation. It's easy to sit around and cry about everything. Get out there and get what you want. It's all out there for the taking right now. I think you have it or you don't. I think you're born with it or you're not. I feel that I've been getting, for a while, a lot of these like motivational clips and I don't know if it's because uh, my microphone and my phone is hearing me say key words and is sourcing that to me or if I'm just, you know, unconsciously engaging with this stuff because I've become recently really curious about how people talk about and discuss this stuff. You know, you hear kids talk about, you know, maybe in different terms than that sort of super macho way. Right. Talent. Talent being, you know, and the idea of being a savage it's sort of like this fixed concept, right? Of like, there's only, you either have something to be successful or you don't. What's interesting about that idea of being a savage is that's a term that's changed a lot in terms of what it has meant over time. You know, at one point there was this, it went from the noble savage to the primitive savage in American history. First, it's about this pre-society state of innocence where Native Americans were thought to be in this like Eden-like state from a Western Christian perspective. And then as they started trying to find justifications to take land, and you think of events like the Trail of Tears, it shifts to this primitive, primitive savage idea, right. right? And I think in culture now, it seems like we use this term to refer to people when they're trying to engage with obstacles that you just need to be aggressive and dominant 
and that there's like this essential struggle and that the goal is to like go all out or go as hard as you can and that you have to tap into this sort of like survival level instinct something that's like pre-society state of nature savage and that's what i think that means what we want to talk about on today's episode of the podcast is i don't know if i even want to say alternative point of view because that implies that this point of view is really grounded. And for my part, I don't really think that there's a lot of validity to what's in there about this idea of being a savage and you're just born with that or you're not. Yeah, I think that for the people who follow that kind of mind frame, that they definitely think that that is real. Like, I mean, it's a it's a social construct like other things. The problem with it is it's extremely exclusive and it means that there are so many people who can't be successful. And it defines success in a way that almost follows that toxic masculinity. And it takes away an even playing field for everybody to engage with whatever it may be at their level and be just as successful without being a savage. It's out there. It's on Instagram. Other people are seeing it. You know, it's one thing if you look at this stuff, say, oh, well, that's just one thing. But you start to see this stuff and these kinds of cultural messages are out there a lot. And they don't just, I mean, first of all, people are putting this stuff together, right? They're editing it and they're posting it. And there's, you know, all of these likes on this stuff, right? People are engaging with it. And so that's an idea that's out there. I think what we want to try to do in a sense is maybe sort of deconstruct that. To frame this for the audience, and I'm really excited about this episode because one of the goals of the podcast is to talk to people who have kind of different levels of understanding, not because of how knowledgeable they are in a sense, but because they're bringing ideas from different perspectives and different domains. And so those differences in understanding are coming from that. Applying here a perspective of development and learning to this concept of what does it mean to get better at things and explore that as a different and I hope a more informed perspective. Because I think sometimes people don't understand what's going on. And so they kind of try to find something. And I think that savage thing and is easy to understand. And the idea of being born with something or not, I think is a big idea that I see all the time in culture in so many different contexts. The example we're going to look at today is thinking about what can we learn from talking about education and models of learning and development in that context. And I think the overlap is that that's a cognitive space, I guess, for lack of a better word. And I also think that when we take it apart, like we are going to with the savage statement, you're looking at how to make people in a setting that maybe challenging, be successful and feel good about it. And that's a transferable skill. And that's different from this idea of tapping into some primal essence where you sort of are overthrowing the limits of society. I agree. And I think that sometimes thinking that way is almost easier for a lot of people because either you are or you're not. You don't have to do a lot of self-development and reflection. So it's really not the most difficult way to do something. The most difficult way to do something is to reflect and learn about yourself and figure out what to change, how to change it, how you feel and how it fits. That's a kind of work that most people struggle. Well, I shouldn't say most, some people struggle to do. So that's really interesting. And let's start then by exploring right into that idea. We're kind of seeing, I think, in that kind of a narrative, and we could have picked any number of examples, but That was just one that I came across the other day that I thought was particularly ridiculous. I think the default of that is to assume, right, like you just kind of articulated, and I'm just sort of reiterating that because I think that's a really interesting distinction to make, is that it seems, I guess, in a way like, oh, well, this is the most intense, the most ultra. You kind of see these alpha male overtones, which you can then segue that into toxic masculinity, overtones. And I think to say that they're overtones is maybe downplaying it. I mean, I think it's extremely direct and forthright. What you're articulating is that engaging with it, 
this thing where it's all or nothing isn't actually as like intense and hard as people think. Can you talk more about why it is that although people might want to see it one way, it actually is something that we might want to re-examine that assumption? Well, nothing comes without difficulty. So you have, I'm going to relate this to education because that's my specialty, but uh, where people will fail school and they're just, they're the fail, you know, they're the failures, they're the dropouts and that's just what they are. They don't have it and they're not going to do it. And they're, whether or not they're okay with it, that's where they are. Cause you either do it or you don't, you're savage or you're not. And it takes more time, patience and effort to have a flexible mindset about yourself and learn about yourself than it does to just state what you are and be inflexible. Inflexibility is something that is challenging for the people around you, but pretty easy for yourself because you're not making changes. You are just continuing to be in that one state. And and once you've decided that's what you are and you stick with it. So I think what I'm proposing almost takes the power out of the savage statement because it's not something that's difficult. It's, it's something you decide that you are. It's a choice that you make and then you stick with it with no room for growth, really in the way that you think about what you're doing and the way we think about what we're doing changes how we do everything. And that's kind of, I think maybe we can relate that to the idea of like a fixed mindset, right? Where this idea of like a absolute dogmatic sense of self isn't powerful or empowering. It's not a form of personal strength because then you're deciding you're you can or you can't. And I think you can relate that to um idea of going. I mean, everybody's gone to school in our, you know, in our audience, right? We've all had our own experiences with education, but we've all been through that space. And the idea of you might identify and say, well, in this classroom or in this subject, I can. And in this subject, I can't. I'm not a math person. People say that all the time. Everybody's a math person. And the, or, and the idea really to even say that there are math people and non-math people itself maybe just sort of feeds into that logic too. Right? And I think even for people who don't have experience being through the educational system themselves, people who see it on TV or have walked through a school or know anything about school can tell you that oftentimes students and or teachers tend to box people in to categories And oftentimes students feel stuck in those categories or they feel boxed out of a certain category of education. And if we relate that to being a savage, what are you supposed to do if you're not a savage, right? Because supposedly being a savage is your only solution. You're an academic beast or you're not. Right. And we could think about, yeah, you could think about the idea of, we could relate that to the idea of talent. Right. right, which comes up in 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 school, right, in academic achievement, oh. but also in a lot of other areas that people try to pursue too. Well, and I also want to go back to that last statement you made, but I I'm thinking that you know most of the student bodies in schools are not savages or academic beasts. Um, they're people who are somewhere in the middle and are working on themselves and learning and challenging themselves. And you've got some people who maybe weren't going to graduate and then figured it out and then have master's degrees and great jobs. And that's success. It looks different for everybody. And it's a unique path. You can't all fit one way. We're not all academic beasts or savages because that's not a thing for everyone. It's just not, that's not realistic. There's uh, this basketball coach um, is since passed away, but he was most famous for being the basketball coach at uh, UCLA for a long time. And before he got into doing that, he was a teacher. And he has a TED Talk. Uh, the uh, coach's name is John Wooden. And he has a TED Talk, which I think he it looks like he gave maybe just like a year or two before he died. And he's one of these people who's just incredibly robust and lived to be, I think, 99 or 100 years old. He talks about how when he was a teacher, and I think this was in the 1930s, that, and it's interesting, I think, to share this because we see these attitudes still very much present in how we think about school, that 
and I'm paraphrasing here, he says that for the parents of the students, it was perfectly um, acceptable for the other students in the class to have C's because, of course, the neighbor's children were average. But it was unacceptable for their students to not have A's and B's because, of course, their students were above average. And he said that he didn't like that idea of you know, success and that he came up with his own way of thinking about success and essentially defined it in, again, paraphrasing here too, but that success is, you know, doing the best that you can with the means or ability available to you. And I think it's interesting because, number one, people have been thinking about this stuff in more dynamic or divergent ways for a lot longer than maybe sometimes we realize. But also, number two, we still see these attitudes of, well, I need to carve myself out as being unique. And that idea of like how, you know, those metrics of evaluation then start to cross into the space of telling us who we are or who we aren't. And Talent, and there's a lot of different words here, but talent is a word that we see in a lot of different spaces where people are trying to perform and get better at things. When we use that space to sort people by talent, are we actually limiting the development of the real talents or abilities that people have that could be brought forward? There's this short story that was published in 1960 called The Loneliness of the Long Distance Runner uh, by Alan Stiltow. And it was just the writing moment was a part of this um, group of writers in Britain who were unhappy with the fixed social hierarchy, which is another way of having a system where you're saying there are people who are, you know, in, and then there are people who are out. And you know, we're not going to do a literary breakdown of the story here, but essentially the protagonist um, is not functioning in society. Uh, he gets arrested for a burglary that he didn't escape from, and then he gets sent off to one of the British public schools for some, you know, length of time. And while there, he gets involved in cross-country running, and he ends up at the sort of peak of the story dropping out of the race. And the idea was that the school is an institution that's an extension of this fixed hierarchy in society. And that, you know, the character rebelled by not participating in that. And that when we think about this in this context, I think it raises some questions about how people perceive the institutions and the environments that they're in. But maybe what we're saying is that schools don't automatically work one way or another way, that a lot of it is about how people, this, when we're our students, how we engage with that environment. And then it's also about how that environment is able to engage with us. Yes, that's the part I think some places or some classrooms can be missing. You need to have a responsive environment and as a teacher that means, or a coach, right? That means you need to be able to reflect on your own work and adjust accordingly and teach to the class and not teach to the lesson plan as much, get the content in, but make sure that it's accessible to everybody. And then once you figure out where students, when you work with students to help them learn about themselves and, and where they can be successful, you see a different kind of growth and you see a different kind of hard work. And it's not about talent. It's about working hard, but also paying attention. It's not being a savage. It's being mindful. What works for me? What doesn't? Why? It does this work. And when I give you this assignment, what about this is freaking you out? What turns you away from it? Let's talk about that. Let's work through it. Do you need this to help you do it? Or do you need to do it differently? Does it get to the same end point where you're showing me what you know? Sure. Why is it worthwhile to do that, right? Because... I think in that story, the protagonist and, and the message of the story is that if you participate in the system, you're just going to end up where the system wants to sort you. And the only thing you can really do is reject that. And you can sort of understand and like 
you know, Britain, especially in the 1950s, there were a lot of elements of, you know, extremely rigid social hierarchy. And I think for people in the United States, sometimes there's this sort of like the idea of these quaint, you know, rigid British social communities. But, you know, those there are people really living in those spaces. And when you're in those kinds of spaces, it's not that great, especially when you're not benefiting from being in that position. And, you know, you talked to just mentioned the idea of like learning about yourself. It seems some people seem to be able to find their way, so to speak, yeah. in a self-directed manner, or they're sort of more self-learning through their experiences. That can happen in different ways. Some people seem to be need to maybe be outside of that official, you know, the sort of mainline structure of what that is, and that creates that space. And then, though, that seems to be sort of one end of a spectrum. Well, I would say that more often than not, when you give people a little bit of freedom, once you've worked with them on some basic skills and sense of self and understanding and how to self-advocate and all these things, when you give them space to use those newfound skills or skills that they've had coming from a background that supports that, they tend to do best when they have a little bit of space to do their own thing. And most people will get to the point where they are self-directed learners, and that's really the goal. We want to know what's best for us. Not No one should know us better than we know ourselves, but that takes a lot of self-reflection and work. And a part of that work in my job is looking at what students have. You know, you have the hierarchy of needs. Have they had food? Have they had sleep? Have they had loving home? Or uh, do they have clothes? Do they have everything they need? Because the last thing that anyone, athlete or not, is going to be able to focus on is bettering themselves in an authentic way outside of just a distraction from home maybe they have a hard time in. So basically what I'm saying is that figuring out if the person has everything they need to start and then once you know where they're at, you can kind of break down the pieces with them and what it is they need and how to help them get there. And if they can't have everything they might need, what can you do instead? That's when you really can dig into how do you learn? What do you need for learning? Because learning or racing or athletics or anything, um, any interest point can't be thoroughly explored to someone's you know, to the best of their ability, unless they have what they need to be able to focus on that. And then that just leads into the idea of having an environment as a coach or a teacher that is responsive to what you see in the students or the athletes, paying attention and having a relationship with them and, and open conversations with them and engaging with them. It's not, I'm telling you this, I'm telling you that. It's, it's learning about what they need. And then eventually getting to the point where you find their zone of proximal development. And that's, you know, this zone of learning that's just above where they're at, but not so far that it feels impossible. And then they'd have to be a savage to do it. <laughs> so, so that's the idea. And that zone is also not so easy that they're not going to grow from it. It needs to be this kind of sweet spot. And the student or athlete should know where that spot is and what it feels like to be there because that's where they're going to feel successful. I think some of the language and the terms that you're using here really stand out because we see this carryover and this reciprocity from that language into other spaces. I think the commonality here is we're talking about processes of development and how through development, we can see improved levels of what we can call performance. And performance, we could probably define and discuss what that means, but maybe one way to think about it is it's the ability to engage with a problem or a challenge and get to a successful endpoint. As individuals, when we engage in sport and athletics, that's one pathway to by engaging with a task of performance to if we can do that successfully, we're getting to those higher levels of that hierarchy of needs of self-actualization and self-esteem. The parallel, and it's not just a parallel, I would say it's essentially the same thing. When we are in a space for education or academic challenges, we're also engaging with tasks of performance. And it's the same essential thing. The actual task 
and the actual performance is different, but that this sort of mind-body dualism that goes back to the Enlightenment when people thought that the mind is this totally separate thing from the body, we've kind of moved past that in terms of scientific understanding and psychological understanding, but there's still sort of that pop culture idea being alpha, of being savage, of, of being dominant. It's that idea of mind over matter versus like your mind is responsive to matter. There's a couple things that we want to unpack here and think about what do they mean about our ability to engage with problems and challenges. You talked about how important it is to meet those lower level needs in that hierarchy. What scale or kind of magnitude of difference does that make? Because we're not necessarily talking about just the level of, I only got to eat five of the peanut butter crackers in my six peanut butter cracker packet. For our audience, how can we sort of best help everybody understand what the level of impact of meeting versus not meeting those can have? Well, I would, the first comment I have is that rather than say lower level, I would say foundational. You can't build anything if the foundation isn't strong. So those needs are the foundation. If you want to get the best out of a person and even have them engage with that concept that this is the best version of themselves, they need to know what's lacking. So I'll give you a brief example of what my classroom is like. You, you know, you come into my room there's a coffee machine. I teach at a high school, right? So there's a coffee machine. There's coffee available. Students can make coffee. There's a refrigerator. There's a little pantry if you need a snack. If you need notebooks or pencils, there's a wall that says, take what you need. And not everything has to be a crisis if you didn't have it at home. And when you come here, you're going to get what you need, even if you didn't have it before you walked in. So I might not be able to solve problems of food insecurity completely, but when they show up to my room first thing in the morning, and they need that cup of coffee, or they need a hot tea, or some water, or whatever it is, it gets them started, you know, kind of on the right foot. It really starts with all of these things that you see people having on TV that, you know, the white picket fence family, that's not super common. Kind of a myth for... Yeah, for many reasons. And I think that when students can recognize or athletes or people can recognize what it is that they feel they're, they're lacking in their lives, you can start figuring out how to get that need met. And so sometimes I'll be connecting students with social workers so that they don't have to deal with food insecurity and I'm sending home backpacks full of food from the food pantry or I'm helping parents coordinate appointments. And then those are students. I have, I have three students in my little group right now who were not graduating. They were not on track to graduate. They're juniors in high school. They, they, it wasn't, wasn't going to happen when I got them in the fall. They are all on track to graduate now. And it's not because I did something magical for them. They worked really hard to recognize the things that they needed. And they were able to figure out how to have those needs met so that they could do something like read an assignment or engage with athletics and have them space in their brains to think about it and then to go even beyond that and say I'm going to be metacognitive and think about how I'm thinking am I going too easy am I am I going too hard is this feeling impossible because it might actually be impossible for me where's my zone of proximal development where's my sweet spot and how do I challenge myself so that I can grow and better myself and who's on my team who can I talk to about it it seriously all started with just offering coffee and snacks in September, and then having an environment where we're talking about our needs and, and what helps us be better people. I think it's easy to oversimplify. And I think there's a balance between trying to both sort of like find the simple sort of like, how do we condense, but then also continue to try to explore and expand. Right. And that's what we're trying to do here. I think sometimes in the context of performance, people make an adversary out of the kinds of needs that are directly facilitating them. And I think that's often where the savage idea comes from, is that people are powering through something and using it as a distraction. And that can be super self-destructive. And most of the time, people who are being, quote, quote, savage are much more capable than they're showing. And they can do so much more, but they're not digging in deep to figure out how to do that. 
They're just in that fixed mindset. So it's it really holds people back. And it's not really to the best of their ability. It's just what they're capable of with the way they are now. And that's very different. And that performance stuff isn't about this sort of rugged individualism, which has a long, significant history in American culture of the idea that you need to be independent, the art of self-reliance. And there's just so many references to this stuff again and again and again, but you end up painting yourself into a corner and just something like food becomes so complicated for people because there's so many messages out there in culture in so many different areas that can make us think that something like that isn't really that ideal in terms of you need to avoid food for social reasons because you need to be, you think it's going to affect you being more or less attractive, or it's not uh, socially desirable to be seen eating in certain ways, or you need to be smaller, or you need to lose weight in order to perform if you're doing a physical challenge, or you need to gain weight and muscle mass. If you're shutting that stuff down, that you're actually taking away from what we're trying to acknowledge here is the foundation. And if there is a necessity to sort of you know, get to a different mesomorphic state that you're not actually going to get there by that means because you're just, you're eroding the foundation that's going to allow you to engage in a problem, a task of performance, which is more complex. And that's where you also mentioned the idea of, and I might not be recalling the exact phrase that you used, but people who are kind of get into the state where they start to become like, more aware and have a higher level of understanding their ability to sort of like move to the point of understanding their needs and that that seems to be predicated on doing these other things first or else you can't engage with that and what does it start to look like and what kinds of like things start to open up for people as they make that if they're making that transition into that sort of next phase of sort of like being able to move towards being able to fully engage with whatever their performance challenge or problem or task is. First, I just want to say that the goal is to build self-reliance. The biggest part about self-reliance is acknowledging that you don't know what you don't know. And self-reliance means you know who to ask. It's not necessarily that you know everything. So that's the difference between being self-reliant with a set of fixed mindsets or a growth mindset that you you are self-reliant because you know what to do. But it doesn't mean you have every answer independently. You just know where to get the information. If people have a kind of a concept of the way I engage with a challenge or a task is I sort of take my presumed level of talent, whatever that might be, and then I just proceed to beat my head against the wall and see if the wall gives in or I give in first. And like that, that's the nature of task or obstacle. But instead, what we're saying is that actually our ability to engage with a task or obstacle isn't like a, we're just going in here and we're going to encounter this thing. And then through that encounter, we're going to like determine if we're worthy or not. You can go in and encounter something and at first appear not worthy or appear to not be talented as we're sort of changing these foundational pieces, if we then go and re-engage with that obstacle or challenge, that we're going to start to see a different experience. And like with that is coming like different, I guess, is it behaviors? Is it like, and what does that look like? Because I think for people who are listening might be maybe wondering, well, if I was going to try to think about what, what is this happening for me? How could they try to maybe recognize or do their own self-reflection to say, hey, am I starting to maybe try to apply this if I'm trying to move away from this sort of just like, you know, again, beating my head against the wall and I want a more dynamic way to think about engaging with problems and challenges. Cognition is what drives our behavior. So if you're changing the way you think about things, you're going to do them differently. Changing the way you think about yourself and your level of engagement in this any given challenge that you're engaging with and want to be successful in You'll see it as the the wall that it is or the challenge that it is, and you'll see yourself or the person that you are in that moment. And then once you start to unpack it 
and unpack where you're at and what you need from your environment because it's not, I mean, we are not the problem, right? Like sometimes we need to fix some things and work on some things and we need to figure out how to better engage with our environment and then make changes to our environment so it can better engage with us. You mentioned that in the beginning. When you can acknowledge the things about you that are quotes, quotes, missing or lacking or spaces that aren't filled that you need to be successful, you can start thinking about how to develop those spaces further. So you're just adding skills. You're creating a space for self-advocacy because you learned about how you learn or you learned about what your body needs and, and how to facilitate that. So it's basically just taking the puzzle apart and figuring out how to put it back together much better with like really great glue. Another part of that that I've talked about in my classrooms too is there's going to be like those moments of cognitive wobble when you're grappling with those ideas of like, well, you know, I should be doing this. I should be training, you know, 12 mile runs every day at 630 pace, or, you know, I should be getting A's all the time, but is that really working for me? The way that I'm preparing to do this race, like am I, is the other 12 mile runs really what's going to make me better? Maybe it's not. I need to think about what I'm thinking about. <laughs> like how, how does this work? And grappling with ideas is a part of figuring out where your zone of proximal development would be. So you have to know yourself and then take those ideas and watch them play out and have these experiences and reflect each time. And, and when you're actively in them, thinking about them, not just at the end. And then actually applying what you learned about yourself and taking that to be self-reliant and know how to ask for what you need to have that self-advocacy. So it's a lot different than just like savagery. And it's a and it's a process learning that and that there's like a particular kind of like space in which you're going to be able to develop that because we're not maybe talking about just constantly go out and just keep engaging with that you know, obstacle. That's not the goal because that might be, you know, at a certain extent, an obstacle at times is going to be beyond what we're really ready to do. And that's maybe a part of what the benefit of knowing yourself is, is that you can recognize where you are. But there's a space in which we're, you know, and it's not just that we're like, oh, I've met these foundational needs and now time will just sort of pass. And then all of a sudden I'll just go and engage with this obstacle, right? There are things that happen in that space and uh, terms that have come up so far, like cognitive wobble, proximal development, sweet spot. And some of our audience might be familiar with, um, and I think this may have come up in other episodes, the idea of there being a sweet spot as this level where you're just below the physiological threshold known as lactate threshold. And that sweet spot is supposed to be this state where everything is in balance and you have this perfect state or this, you know, as close to perfect state of it's challenging, but it's not too intensive and you can do a lot of it. And so it can be really productive. Is that something that we see in a maybe a more general sense, but is that something that's sort of true to the way we're learning and developing in general, that there's kind of like a space and, you know, maybe something like proximal development and then the things that are able to happen in that space is that sort of similar because it's not like we're trying to get people to go beyond what their threshold of ability is. A part of this is maybe their threshold is going up as they're meeting these foundational needs, but that doesn't mean that we're trying to then go out and just push as hard as we can Against that, there's a, a space or a zone in which good things happen. And how do we know when we're in that zone, either when we're, because you could be, you know, trying to work with somebody, how do you know and help them get there? Or then as an individual, what kinds of experiences might define or characterize that? Like, how can we say I'm in that zone of development? I know that I'm going back to cognitive wobble again, but usually the cognitive wobble happens when you're when you're starting to hit that spot. With athletes, if you say to them, how does your body feel right now? I want you to go run this. Well, what pace should I run it at? I don't know what pace you should run it at. You have to tell me how you feel. And you need to be able to gauge yourself to be able to hit that spot once you learn enough about yourself. And I know I'm being slightly repetitive, but once you know enough about yourself 
and you know what it feels like to be in that zone and you can talk about what it feels like to be in that zone, you know how to stay there and you should be able to stay there and it's going to change because the, the point is, is that it's, you're growing with it. You're growing. It's getting a little bit more difficult and you can meet that challenge, a stepladder type thing. I don't know. That's kind of a hard question to answer because it looks different for everybody. Well, cognitive wobble, I think, is a term that maybe people aren't familiar with. I think probably a lot of our audience, if they do a lot of training and exercise and they're into this stuff, I think the concept of a threshold makes sense to them. But could you elaborate more on, you know, a cognitive wobble? What does that mean? Cognitive wobble. I can give you just like a real world example from the classroom to kind of help explain it. So if I have some math on the board and I have students talking about it and they're not sure and sometimes they're saying the wrong answer and it, but they're then thinking about it again and they're really engaging with it and they don't quite know the answer yet but they're getting there and it's exciting to talk about it and work through it and it doesn't feel like ultimate defeat because you don't know right away. That's what cognitive wobble is. It's the space where you are considering the options, you're thinking about all the pieces and you might not know the answer right away but you're engaging with it, grappling with different ideas and trying to figure out what's going to work or what the answer may be. Basically keeping the growth mindset in the middle of a challenge and making it so that it's what you're supposed to be doing. Not that you're defeated, but you're supposed to have cognitive wobble. It's supposed to be a little bit tricky. You're supposed to have to work. It's not easy, right? I'm not saying it's supposed to be impossible either though. And that's where that space of cognitive wobble is. It's not about always being successful, right? Not everything you're doing in that space is meant to be a reflection on, because again, that the savage word, which we keep using, it's really, I think, a placeholder more so for the idea that you have this success characteristic in you or you don't. And the suggestion from that Instagram video is that Fewer and fewer people generation to generation have the capacity to be successful and as if society is, you know, softening people down. But, you know, the irony is that there's probably a lot of things in society. And that's, again, one of the things that that loneliness of the long distance runner was probably grappling with is that there's a lot of things in society that are making it difficult in order for us to really express our ability. And so having a stronger understanding of where that comes from, I think just becomes more and more important. It's not that people lack the ability to do it. It's becoming more necessary or more challenging for people to get to the point where they're entering into that state, where they're experiencing, you know, cognitive wobble or whatever it's sort of equivalent is in in different areas that people are trying to work on. Yeah. And I think too, that one of the most important and very simple statements that helps put this into perspective is that, you know, mistakes make your brain grow. You learn from them. And when you're in cognitive wobble, you might make a mistake, then you'll learn from it. And then you're learning more about yourself. You know, you're learning more about what you need and don't need or what is missing, what's there. So it's important to engage with something with an open mind to be able to make mistakes and to feel like you can be vulnerable and not judged in in a setting so that you can get to the point where you can compete or test or whatever it may be in a way that you're comfortable, you're, you know, you're comfortable with the discomfort that will help with the growth because you made mistakes to get there and you probably make mistakes when you are doing it. And this stuff is transferable, right? I mean, we're in some sense, we're trying to like emphasize a connection between we're taking things that we have come to understand through studying how people learn and what that looks like in education and saying that, well, that also can apply if you're trying to pursue something like being an athlete. But this is like the pathway to like any kinds of challenges that you develop. And that's one of the things that's, I think, sometimes missed is that people think education is, well, it's about being successful within the space of education, and then you go out and then you're in the real world. Or people might think that athletics is about being successful in the context of athletics, but it's just a game. If we look at this from the perspective of there are these core capacities to sort of recognize how do I go from a state of I don't know how to handle or solve a problem to now I can handle and solve a problem, that's a universal thing because there's so many contexts in life with whatever you might do for work or a career 
for interpersonal relationships, family relationships, um, you know, participating in society as a, as a citizen, as a member of your community. Like we're constantly going to encounter these situations. And I think a part of what we can say we're sort of seeing here is that when you look at these spaces, like what happens in the in education, and then you say, and we're seeing this parallel to the experiences of what happens when we try to do play sports and athletic contests, we're seeing this strong level of overlap, but that's not the limit of that. The way that I like to think about it is that this should be or is, it's not, but it should be the human experience. There is room for growth, there's room for learning, there's space for improvement. The human experience is being vulnerable, is from making the mistakes and growing from them, engaging with that cognitive wobble and figuring things out even when they're tricky. I do think though that when people get to a space where they're trying to figure out where their zone of proximal development is and what's going to work for them and what's not, oftentimes it can be a huge turnoff and be much easier to go back to be a savage or you're not mindset is the physiological flooding that can come with failure and not being able to shift your thinking to this is just a part of the day. And I think people also have this feeling of like, I need to fix this right now. And your sense of urgency most of the time is individual to you, unique to you. And so if you can engage with that physiological flooding, I mean, not if you can, if you can give yourself space to cool off from that, it's a very real thing, right? Your brain releases chemicals when you're upset or have feel like a failure. And you might not be able to take in information when this happens because you're physiologically flooded. You can't. It happens when people argue all the time. Just keep fighting because you can't think of what's actually happening anymore. Um, and even what your point was to start sometimes. That's like a big part of the the whole picture, like the human experience. You're going to have things that you're not good at. And like, that's true for everyone. There are going to be ways to become better at it. That's also true. And it's going to look different for everybody how they get there. There's going to be mistakes, like I said, you know, cognitive wobble. There's the failure and physiological flooding that comes with that. There's learning, you know, self-awareness to like kind of figuring out how to manage your physiological flooding so that you can reflect logically and not as emotionally and make decisions based on what your metacognition may be about any given engagement with a challenge. And there's different kinds of failure, I think, maybe is an implication of this. And maybe a part of that has to do with how we process failure too, can sort of change what that you know, means, right? And that that's a part of the growth there. I think about an example in my experience through the period where I coached cross country, you know, it felt like every time the athletes weren't able to go out and be successful or have a positive experience in whatever we were doing, I would walk away from that and be like, wow, you know, I really screwed that up. But then eventually I started to see this pattern where I was like, wait a minute, every time something didn't meet the kind of expectation or the goal that I had hoped would result from whatever intervention or process, I started to realize that all of my ideas that ended up being good only ever happened if first there was some sort of a failure there in a weird way. And it didn't like totally take away from the sense of man would have been really nice to have been successful there. It would have been really great if the stuff worked out. I started to see this so much that it was sort of like, okay, we just failed at this. I don't know what it is, but my experience is telling me that, you know, in a relatively short period of time, I'm going to get some new idea perspective on how to do this, you know, in the future. Because it's almost like, unless I had those failures, it wasn't, nothing was prompting my thinking. And I was staying in this, fixed mindset of confirmation bias. And it was kind of an interesting experience to sort of, and part of this is in hindsight, I think, and as I've had other experiences, seeing that more that like every time something goes wrong, that's the possibility to actually learn something different. And the only way that's possible, though, is by not having that same level of negative association about failure, because otherwise, if you're just shutting down, then you can't really engage with what could be learned from that. You have to have a way to engage with that failure constructively. And I think a part of that is having a healthy space for emotion around it. So acknowledging how you feel and 
working with that too. Basically just like making space for yourself to be a person, to have that human experience, let your feelings come and go about it. And, you know, let them have their time to stay. Like be mad that you lost. Like that sucks. I'm, you know, I'm really sorry that you lost or whatever it is. Even cry, you know, do what you got to do. But don't think you're going to find the answer while you're in the middle of an, an emotive episode, which, again, is totally normal in any type of failure. It's going to happen that you're going to have some sort of feeling about it and then being able to take it and, and learn from it when you're ready. I think if we we're going to try to look for a takeaway in a sense that what might be actionable or a thing that we could immediately start to try to apply or maybe sort of implement or kind of like tinker with for ourselves as we do this, if we think about that idea of like, what is our original performance goal or target or problem that we're trying to encounter, that if we're finding that to be overwhelming or difficult or intimidating, we can't see a way forward or just seems impossible. It's sort of towards the beginning of this episode, you gave the really powerful example of people in what I would say is like a relatively short period of time going from I'm not going to succeed to now things are are moving clearly and definitively in that direction. And I think what we're, we can say is that if we engage differently with our concept, what it means to engage with a task or a challenge and look for constructive failure because that's where the growth occurs. That's where we're going to start to see that transformation. And sort of like the proof becomes you're no longer having that same reaction, right, to the problem or the challenge, and that we're not going to be trying to jump back to that state of like, well, this is just a reflection of who I am as an individual, because the capacity for growth is a lot greater. And if you can start to see your relationship with problems and tasks changing, then that has to maybe also be reflective of a change in your mindset and that you can start to say, well, try to identify what are the pieces of cognitive wobble or whatever that might, you know, however that might be better articulated and different things people are being, are pursuing. Where are those pieces happening for me? And how can I continue to try to incorporate those experiences? So I think that a lot of times, and I'm not sure that I'm answering, responding directly to what you've stated or asked, but I think a lot of times people can be surprised or caught off guard by an environment's response or, you know, a coach's response or a teacher's response when they're expecting a fight over it. And I don't mean, you know, they they want they are so used to being the problem. Like I, I didn't train right. I didn't do this. Like I, I, I went too hard or I'm never going to get it right because I was supposed to do these repeats and I've been doing them like I should and I'm not getting better. Well, yeah, you're not getting better because it's not working for you. And then for, for the athlete or the student to hear like, you're not going to get better that way because it doesn't work for you that way. Let's figure out what works. That can be really hard for people and really surprising. It kind of takes the wind out of their sails, the hate for themselves away, the pressure off like, oh. You're right. It's not working. Yeah, like that's okay. Let's figure it out. So th- that's where we start to see those pieces. It's just really looking at <laughs> your perception of self um, through that whole long journey that we've discussed. You know, like, you know, the foundational needs are being met. You can't really reflect on your fight or flight if you're always in fight or flight. In a sense, then maybe we can say that if you are taking on a challenge or a goal, whether it's because it's something that you need to engage with in your life and find a constructive and effective solution to, or it's because you've picked something that you need to do. Because some people in our audience are professional athletes, and this becomes an interesting space between you're combining this like vocational career need where there are certain challenges that you're not really like picking and choosing. Like if you want to continue to have that be your vocation, you need to be able to engage with that. That's also a space where you can see a lot of systematic expectations. And so rather than code that as I can't, and that idea of that sort of like defensive reaction of, well, I'm being exposed for being a fraud or not being sufficiently alpha or strong, but to just shift our mindset to say, if you're not able to engage with the problem, it's not revealing of who you are. It's really revealing of 
the strategies that you're using aren't working. And you have to be willing to throw those out no matter. And you see this. And this is where I think there's this incredible parallel between some of the experiences that people can have as students and the experiences people can have as athletes is that both of them have a lot of strong norms and that there's a lot of messaging that says this is the way to get from A to B. And if you're at A and you're trying to get to B, what matters is getting from A to B. It's not getting from A to B in a particular way. And if you want to get to B and you're not able to get there, you need to get rid of those directions and you need to innovate. And that's one of the things we're trying to explore in this podcast in general. And I think one of the things we're going to circle back to over and over again are trying to find different ways to engage with that and what happens when we hit that wall and how can we find new ideas and perspectives that can empower us. Well, I think too, one one important thing to remember is that if you're lost and you're in the woods and you're going in circles, do you keep going in circles or do you try a new way? You know, you, you go a new way. And I think, again, you know, those systematic things, we have the answer for you. This is the key. People are just oftentimes not open to admitting what they don't know. And so if you're in the woods and you're lost and you need to get home, you're going to admit real fast that you don't know because there's not that many other options. And so you're going to change your plan. Do that with everything. Change your plan. Be be open. Um, admit what you don't know because that's like a very powerful strength. And it has gotten my students very far in their success when it comes to plans for graduating. And it's them. They're doing it. They're like, I don't really know what to do about this. Okay, so who should we ask? Who should we talk to? What other athletes do we know that have had similar situations? Those, those kind of ideas of outsourcing information and advocating for yourself when you're not sure what to do. Their struggle doesn't mean they can't get from where they are to where they want to be. And it might feel to them. It does mean that, though. Yeah, I think it does. And that's where you have that mindset that shifts. And that's what I'm talking about when I say that when I look at someone and, and I say, I'm not mad at you because you didn't go to class. And they're like, what? I'm like, yeah, well, obviously there's a reason you didn't go. Let's talk about it. I'm not mad at you. I just don't understand why, what is stopping you. So you need to, you need to tell me more about that. And it could be something that to me would seem benign, like having a student they didn't prefer in the room and they can't focus. They're not going to get anything out of it because they're fixated on something else. And I'm like, okay, so you know that about yourself. Let's work around it. Let's figure it out. That's not to say that there aren't going to be some discomforts and adversities that we have to go through in order to succeed sometimes. And that can be a part of the mindset shift is like, okay, sorry, you don't like that student. Let's figure out how you can cope with being in the same room so that you can finish this, finish this out. And that will work for some people and for other people it won't. And when we have the opportunity to build our environments differently, because there can be well-intentioned people in our space who are genuinely motivated to try to help us and engage us, but they could also be in, you know, reinforcing that idea of like fixed sense of self. And sometimes like we need to be able to separate ourselves from that space too. And that can be challenging to navigate that. But sometimes you need to think too about how are you building your space And who are the people that you are surrounded with? And when you have the opportunity to really make choices like that, and as we go further into life, the autonomy and the opportunity to make those choices does become greater than it does when we're in school. Because just because we're talking about this through the lens of, you know, what can we learn when we look at achievement and progress and getting from A to B in school doesn't mean that it doesn't apply outward. And a part of that struggle or things that might not be working for you could be certain individuals. And it, again, is complex because those of individuals who maybe could be contributing to the environment that's not where it needs to be aren't trying to do anything negative. And when you recognize that this stuff is happening, that's a part of what you have to navigate. If you're an athlete, you're an environment, you've been doing the same thing for a while and nothing is happening, It does at a certain point, you have to be able to recognize, have the maturity to say that, you know, my decision to say, this isn't working for me, isn't a judgment on the intentions of the person who might be trying to help you. But it's just a recognition of this form of help isn't 
the help I need. With that idea comes the idea of removing the the, the concept of having a big ego and, and just talking about things for what they are and kind of removing that self-consciousness around open communication. Ultimately, what you're saying, what it sounds like is like, oh, that doesn't work for me. So what I would like to take that and turn it into is, okay, so this doesn't work for you. You don't need to pretend like you're too cool or that you're better than this team or that coach doesn't know what I need. I'm done. And you can actually like engage with the people, try to figure it out. And sometimes people are going to be met with opposing parties that just can't meet them with that growth mindset and it maybe won't work and not everything will work. That's a part of learning about how you handle things and figuring out what environments are going to work and what you absolutely do not need in your life and what you do need. Well, I think it's possible that no matter how much evidence somebody might have to say, no, this works. It doesn't matter because if it's not working for you, that's all the evidence you need. Yeah, right. It's not an argument. It's a conversation. And if you're going to argue, you're already not getting what you need. It's like, okay, take the egos away. We're not stepping on anybody's toes. We're just having a conversation to figure it out. And that is really powerful. That's where you find solutions. That's where you find self-advocacy. That's where you find metacognition. All sorts of great things happen in that space. That's the zone of proximal development. And that's where we see the cognitive wobble because you're having those difficult conversations. Have as many of those as you can and take the heat off of them so they just turn out to be conversations. Well, nobody is an outlier. Everybody's a person. Yeah, everybody. It's the human experience. I say that all the time. It doesn't like it doesn't matter what the representative sample says. You don't need a representative sample. You need to know yourself. And you're not a data point to be dismissed because it's not working for you. It's just something new to understand and figure out. And when we engage with problems, we want to recognize that we have that worth as people that we deserve to be able to figure out how can I get from where I am to where I want to be. And maybe at the end of the day, that looks different for different people because there's a lot of places in society outside of you know the sporting arena and outside of you know academic environments that are also competitively organized it goes back to that john what an idea of you know success basically means different things for different people and we can get that we can self actualize and get the benefits of that experience and feel fulfilled as people without necessarily being better than everybody else just like we don't need to get from a to b by doing what everybody else does. The idea that there's one correct experience, I think is very narrow and confining and limiting, and it reduces creativity and it reduces the opportunity for people to feel good. Yeah. I mean, which might seem simple, but I think it's really important to be able to be in that position because if we can't feel good, then good things probably aren't going to happen. And that's how you get to be the best that you can be. And you might be the best out of everybody else. You know, like that could still happen <laughs> because you're doing things to get there. And I'm not saying you have to be, but I'm saying oftentimes people think they can't do it and they really can. It just looks different. Thinking about all of these things tied together I think that for all of us here on Black Cats Run and for the members of the Black Cats Run audience, I think we all have something that we can take away and apply in a meaningful, actionable way to wherever we're looking to engage with performance and overcome obstacles in our life. Thank you, Amanda, for taking the time to join us here on Black Cats Run. Thank you for having me. A little bit of a teaser for those of you who've made it to the end of the episode. Amanda is going to be joining us on a new recurring segment that's going to be called On the Couch, where we talk about a variety of topics related to psychology, identity, and better understanding what it means to develop our sense of self as we interact with the world and the spaces around us. And thank you to all of our listeners for making the Black Cats Run podcast such a rewarding and meaningful space in which to explore these kinds of ideas and have these kinds of conversations. You can follow us on our Instagram, at Black Cats Run. If you've enjoyed today's episode or the podcast in general, and you feel like 
sharing that with other people who you think would be interested or reposting it to your story on Instagram, we'd greatly appreciate it. Check back with us this Friday morning, 5 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. We're releasing our finale of our Learn to Fly arc. We'll catch you next time.